So good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm really thrilled to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium tonight. Our program this evening, The Framers' Coup, The Making of the United States Constitution, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, and as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to our stage. I would also like to thank one of our trustees who is with us in the audience this evening, Mr. Stey Sternberg, and to thank, um, thank him for all he does on behalf of this great institution. Thanks so very much. Um, of course, I want to recognize all the Chairman's Council members in the audience this evening and my great colleague, Dale uh, Gregory, from whom you'll hear at the close of the program. Dale, of course, is our Vice President for Public Programs. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted via written questions on note cards. You should have received a note card and pencil as you were entering the auditorium. If not, colleagues are still going up and down the aisles with them. Uh, later on, they will collect the, the note cards and uh, deliver them to, uh, to the stage. There will be a formal book signing this evening following the program, and copies of Michael Klarman's new book will be available for sale in our New York history store. So we're welcome, uh, thrilled to welcome Michael J. Klarman to the New York Historical Society. He's the Kirkland and Ellis professor at Harvard Law School. Prior to his appointment at Harvard, he served as the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law and Professor of History at the University of Virginia Law School. He also clerked for the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Professor Klarman is the author of several books, including his latest, The Framers' Coup, The Making of the United States Constitution. Benno Schmidt, our moderator this evening, is also a trustee of the New York Historical Society, and we are very proud indeed to count him on our board. He is uh, as well the co-founder of Avenues the World School. He served as president of Yale University from 1986 to 1992, and he is a former dean of Columbia University Law School and former CEO and chairman of Edison Schools. Until June 2016, he served as chair of the Board of Trustees of the City University of New York. He also served as law clerk to Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren. As always, I would ask you to please make sure that anything that makes noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our speakers this evening. Thank you. Well, I think um, uh, my friend Mike uh, Klarman has written a very, very important book. Uh, this is actually the first book that, in only one volume, treats all aspects of the making of the Constitution. There have been books about pieces of it, the ratification process, the Bill of Rights, the Constitutional Convention. But Mike's book, uh, The Framers' Coup, is the only one-volume treatment we have that covers the whole thing, from the uh, defects in the Articles of Confederation and the other causes that brought about the, the convening of the Constitutional Convention, the convention itself, uh, the arguments against the Constitution by the anti-federalists, the ratification process, which was very, very close and uh, hard fought, and then the making of the Bill of Rights, the final piece of the original or the founding uh, Constitution. Uh, in the second place, his book is, is extremely rich in the extent to which he quotes original sources from the people who were involved in making the Constitution. So it's full of quotes from Madison and James Wilson and Washington and Hamilton and, uh, and all the whole range of people uh, who were involved so that, as he said in his introduction, he wanted to put in the book enough of the original 
uh, cite, uh, original material from the founders so that readers could make up their own mind about, about how to interpret what the founders were saying. And third, and I think probably most important for us this evening, he develops uh, uh, a, th a theory of the Constitution that goes way beyond Charles Beard's famous economic interpretation of the Constitution. Mike, Mike asserts that the Constitution was formed not only <clears throat> for the purpose of nationalizing the government and creating a national government that was viable, unlike the Articles, um, but also to control the democratic and populist processes uh, in the states to protect contracts, property, uh, and, uh, and the like. And he goes beyond, in that respect, anyone I've seen who has written about the, the, uh, the subject. So Mike, let's start with, uh, <clears throat> as your book starts, with the flaws in the Articles of Confederation. What were the main reasons that the, the Articles just did not work? Um, so I think there are basically three flaws in the Articles. Uh, Congress has no taxing power. I can ask the states for money. Those are called requisitions, but it has no enforcement authority. Uh, you can't throw a state in jail, and it has no power to tax individuals. So if you want to think of a modern analogy, the United States' contributions to the UN are sort of equivalent to the state's contributions to Congress. If the United States decided it wanted to stop paying the UN, there's nothing the UN could do about it. And this creates a serious collective action problem because even if individual states are thinking that they'd like to pay their requisitions, everybody's sort of looking around and saying, well, if that state's not paying, why should we be paying? And as a result, you end up with Congress raising very little of the money that it needs either to fight the war or after the war to repay the national debt. Second, there's no power to regulate either interstate or foreign commerce. Uh, when the Revolutionary War is done and the United States is no longer part of the British Empire, almost literally the first thing that Great Britain does, it decides to exclude American goods that can be produced from within the British Empire from uh, Great Britain. And it also tries to cut American shippers out of the, inter, uh, the transatlantic carrying trade, which is an important part of the American economy. Uh, today, what you would do if another country discriminated against your trade is you'd engage in reciprocal uh, trade restrictions, but Congress had no power to regulate trade. Individual states might try to respond in kind, but there's another collective action problem. So if New York decides that they're going to raise tariffs on British goods, New Jersey decides they're going to create a free port, and the scheme doesn't really work. And then finally, there's no real guarantee of federal supremacy and no mechanism for enforcing whatever federal supremacy exists. So if the United States negotiates a treaty with Great Britain to end the Revolutionary War, and some parts of the treaty are unpopular in Virginia, for example, specifically the provision saying pre-war debts ought to be paid, and Virginia doesn't really want to pay those pre-war debts, Virginia planners don't want to pay their British creditors, there's nothing the United States can do to prevent Virginia from violating the treaty. There is no federal court system under the Articles, and therefore the states are pretty much free to pick and choose which parts of the treaty they want to comply with, which means no other country is going to negotiate treaties with the United States if the United States can't force its constituent parts to abide by the treaty. Mike, you also argue that Shea's rebellion in western Massachusetts was a, was a, a causal factor in, in making people think that they had to bring about a constitutional convention. Can you explain that? Sure. So there are two different things that are contributing to the momentum for a constitution. One are the flaws in the Articles of Confederation that we were just talking about. The other is what's going on in the states. And Shays' Rebellion is one aspect of what's going on in the states, but there's another aspect. The 1780s are a time of severe economic contraction. Uh, some modern historians think the economy contracted by as much as 50%, which is not unusual. After a war, there's a lot less demand in the economy. You don't have two armies in the field. And the war was very destructive. So uh, there's a 
economic contraction at the same time that state governments are raising taxes because they want to pay their requisitions, which are going to pay off the national debt. So there's a big debt that was incurred with the war, and there's an effort to pay it. You're raising taxes at a time of economic contraction, which most modern economists would tell you is not a great idea. There's very little hard money in the economy. Most gold and silver has fled to Europe, or people are locking it up, and farmers are being forced to pay taxes that they don't have any hard currency to pay in. And then finally, the final aspect of this is the money is being given to creditors who loan money to the states or the federal government, and most of that debt is being consolidated in fewer and fewer hands. So it's pretty controversial to raise taxes on farmers when they don't have any money to pay the taxes, they have no way to monetize the wealth in their land, and the money's going off to pay speculators who bought up debt at 10 cents on the dollar. So the states are, uh, farmers are demanding that they be, uh, they get some monetary and fiscal relief, otherwise they're going to lose their farms, that they're going to lose, thousands of farmers are going bankrupt. They're demanding that the state legislatures pass some debt relief, that they issue paper money so farmers can monetize basically land banks lending money to farmers so that they don't lose their property. A bunch of the states, a majority of states, pass the paper money laws and the debtor relief laws, but Massachusetts is actually has a fairly conservative constitution. The legislature refuses to provide relief. They're actually raising taxes even more in 1786. And with the legislature not responding to demands for relief, the debtor farmers decide they're going to shut down the courts because it's the only way they can prevent from having their property foreclosed on. So there's actually an army of debtor farmers shutting down the courts in several Massachusetts counties. And that is terribly concerning to the elite like Madison and Washington, who are getting actually exaggerated reports that half the people in Massachusetts are up in arms and the British are... Uh, British are, you know, aligning with them. They, you know, these people are looking to Great Britain for support. And Washington and Madison are getting these reports, and they think that the world is coming to an end. And the way to deal with that is to get power shifted from the states to the national government and give the national government the authority to suppress this sort of debt relief legislation and also to suppress insurrections. The Constitution gives power to Congress to suppress insurrections. And what they're thinking of is mostly things like Shays' Rebellion. Right, right. And so you argue that the flaws in the article, Shea's Rebellion, these debtor relief laws that were passed in, in, in some states um, uh, and were of great concern to Madison and, and Hamilton and the, uh, the elite, as you say, uh, uh, caused the, uh, the calling first of an Annapolis convention, which didn't work, and then the calling of the Constitutional Convention which was supposed to be to amend the Articles of Confederation. But of course, uh, when Madison and the others arrived in Philadelphia for the convention, they decided pretty early on to simply scrap the Articles of Confederation completely. They were just completely unworkable. Start fresh and build a, a national government uh, uh, fresh. And of course, Madison was, as you say, the controlling force, uh, the most influential person at the convention. He came in with the Virginia plan uh, and presented that at the, at the outset of the convention, and that was a plan to create a completely new federal government and scrap the articles. Right. So this is a good object lesson in coming prepared to meetings. Um, Madison is, <laughs> Madison is not the most eminent person in Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin's there, George Washington there, George Mason. There are lots of people who are much older, much better known. Madison's about 35 or 36 years old. Everybody who'd ever worked with Madison was very impressed with him as a thinker. He's actually not a very good public speaker. He's kind of, he's a little bit timid. Uh, he doesn't speak with a very uh, deep voice. At the, rich, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, the reporter actually often can't hear what Madison is saying. But in the Philadelphia, what happened is Madison sat down. He was the only one who, leading up to the convention, did a detailed study of ancient and modern confederacies and looked at the state constitutions, looked at the Articles of Confederation, diagnosed the problems, and came up with a remedial plan and he showed up early in Virginia, he got the, uh, in Philadelphia, he got the other Virginians to come early, 
They coordinated with the Pennsylvanians, all of whom were from Philadelphia, so they were already there. And they came up with a very nationalist and anti-populist plan. And just by virtue of it being the starting point for the convention, they actually had a great deal of influence over the final product. But it's important to note, Madison lost on several things that he cared greatly about. Madison actually emerged from the convention quite depressed that the convention had not gone as far in the nationalist and anti-populist direction as he wanted. He lost on important issues like how senators were selected, how you apportion the Senate, whether there should be a national veto of state laws. But just by virtue of controlling the starting agenda, he had a vast influence on what they did in Philadelphia. You make a point in your book that the convention was in many ways made possible or, or was became a success because it was conducted in secrecy. There were no reporters, no public was, was there. There was no knowledge at the time of what was being done in the Constitutional Convention. And you make the argument that if there had been the kind of public knowledge of what they were doing, the reaction against it would have built up uh, and it probably would have prevented the convention from being successful. One of the first steps they took in Philadelphia was to decide to close the doors and bound everybody by an oath of confidentiality. That was actually a little ironic because they were meeting in the Pennsylvania State House, and Pennsylvania had the most radical constitution in the country that required extreme openness of government. So the legislative sessions in Pennsylvania were open. There were actually requirements that before laws went into effect, they had to be published in the newspapers so people had an opportunity to actually see what the government was doing. All of the state ratifying conventions were open to the public, but the Philadelphia Convention was closed. They had good reasons for that. Madison said many years later that if they hadn't closed the doors of the convention, they probably wouldn't have gotten any constitution written at all. But there were two very important effects of this. One is it liberated them to say things that otherwise they couldn't have said. So they expressed their profound distrust of popular government. George Mason said allowing the people to directly elect the president would be like entrusting blind people to choose among colors. They said that democracy is the worst form of government. They said that if people are elected to play a direct role in government, they'll just be seduced by some demagogue who will convince them that he knows. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's, that's what the framers thought, and maybe that 230 years later, their, their concerns were vindicated. Um, so they couldn't have made statements like that. I mean, Hamilton famously gave this speech on June 18th in which he argued for a life-tenured Senate and a life-tenured presidency. That speech was used against him forever, the rest of his life, by his political opponents. But at the time, there was an oath of confidentiality, and people weren't supposed to talk about this. So they were liberated to say things that were much more nationalist and much more democracy-constraining than they otherwise would have done. And the other point that you alluded to, Benno, is the opposition got no chance to organize in advance because for four months they didn't know what was going on in Philadelphia. And in 1787, it's really hard to organize, right? Really poor transportation, really rudimentary communication. And the anti-federalists, the people who opposed the Constitution, were going to be disadvantaged in organizing anyhow because they disproportionately lived off of the Atlantic coast. They disproportionately lived outside of cities. And having four months in which they couldn't start organizing was actually a big disadvantage. Uh, you talk in your book about the the key compromises that made the Constitution possible. First, the, um, the so-called Connecticut uh, Compromise, which created, uh, which, which gave the small states a reason to support the Constitution because it created a Senate in which the states were equally uh, uh, powerful, notwithstanding their populations. And, and so it, it created a bicameral uh, uh, Congress in which the House was based on population, but the Senate, each state got two Senate votes, no matter what. So Delaware had the same vote in the Senate as Virginia. So one of the things Madison was most intent on accomplishing was having both houses of the legislature apportioned according to population, with then some accommodation made for how you would count Southern slaves. 
Madison is writing letters before the convention, and he's telling his friends, he's telling Jefferson, he's telling Washington, he's telling Governor Edmund Randolph that he thinks a majority of states in Philadelphia will support that. The large states will obviously support it. The three largest states are uh, Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. Obviously, they'll support proportional representation. But he's also calculating that the southern states which are not necessarily large. So the three states south of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, they're not among the largest states, but everybody is anticipating that the demographic shifts will be all in the direction of the south and the southwest. So Madison is banking on the fact that the three largest states will vote for proportional representation and the three most southern states will vote for it. And he's actually right about that. The initial votes at the convention are six to five in favor of proportionality with exactly those states that Madison was calculating on voting in favor. But the small states just played a really mean game of poker. And they basically said, we're not going along with this no matter what. We'll walk out of the convention. We currently have equality under the articles. And you can't take that away from us. And, you know, back then, Virginia had 12 times the population of Delaware Today, California has between 65 and 70 times the population of Wyoming, and they have the same two senators, and that's unamendable. That's in the Constitution, and the only way you can change it is if every state consents, and I wouldn't predict Wyoming is going to consent to that anytime soon. (laughs) Uh, Of course, the other great compromise that, that made the convention success a possibility was the state uh, the slave representation compromise where uh, the Constitution eventually agreed that th- three-fifths of the slave population would be counted as part of a state's population for purposes of its House of Representatives uh, uh, position. And that persuaded the southern states to come in, which they, because uh, the northern states were not about to let all the slaves be counted. Um, so it was that compromise that made the North-South uh, able to support uh, the Constitution. Yeah, there were a couple of compromises, as you know, over slavery. That one was relatively easy for them to agree to. The South Carolinians, who were the most dependent on slavery, they were actually the wealthiest people in the country, the eastern uh, Tidewater, South Carolina planters. Uh, They sent to the convention four incredibly large, powerful, wealthy slave owners. The South Carolinians said slaves should count the same as anyone else for purposes of apportioning the house. Some New Englanders, like Elbridge Jerry, said slaves shouldn't count at all. If Northerners don't get to count property, Southerners shouldn't get to count slaves who they treat as property. And three-fifths was actually a familiar kind of compromise because four years earlier, there had been a debate over how taxes ought to be apportioned under the Articles. And some people had talked about slaves counting three-fifths for purposes of apportioning taxes. So three-fifths was a compromise that actually was fairly easy for them to come to. The other compromises over slavery were much more difficult. So there was a question of whether the slave trade, the international slave trade, would be allowed to continue. South Carolina and Georgia had lost tens of thousands of slaves during the Revolutionary War. Those states were utterly dependent on slavery. And they said, if the Constitution tries to forbid the foreign slave trade, there's no way we're going to approve the Constitution or our states will ratify it. New Englanders were willing to make a deal, basically. So Southerners had said, we want to demand that if there's going to be, this gets a little bit complicated, but Southerners were resistant to giving Congress the power over commerce because they thought the power over commerce would be used to give a monopoly to Northern shippers. Northern shippers are mostly transporting Southern agricultural goods. Back then, it's before cotton, so it's tobacco from Virginia. It's indigo and rice from South Carolina. They're the ones transporting it to Europe. And their concern is if Congress gives a monopoly to Northern shippers, they're just going to extract rents from Southerners. So they'll take half the tobacco crop as their fee for carrying the, the tobacco to Europe. So Southerners want a supermajority requirement for any commercial legislation that would protect them. If you have to get two-thirds in both houses of Congress to regulate commerce, the South can block anything. And the deal at the convention was Southerners would give up their demand for commercial regulation to have a supermajority requirement, and in exchange, the South gets 20 years of protection for the foreign slave trade. 
right? Which which is not prohibited until what 1808. Congress it has the power after 1808 yeah, to, right. to prohibit the foreign slave trade, right? Which right. it did at the which first it moment it, that kicked in. Congress did so. And as you point out, it it was Congress could outlaw the foreign slave trade without having to take any American's pro current property. So it was much easier to do than, than dealing with abolition of slavery in the U.S. itself. Which they never thought seriously about. There's yeah. nobody at the Philadelphia Convention who is advocating try to, trying to abolish slavery in the Constitution. And the reason for that is, A, they want to have a union with Southerners, and 40% of the South's population is enslaved. A substantial percentage of the South's wealth is invested in slavery. They also don't believe in confiscating property. So even Northerners who are concerned about slavery don't think you can just confiscate property without offering compensation. And finally, most Northerners, even who are opposed to slavery, are pretty racist, and they don't believe in creating large free black populations, which in South Carolina would be 60% of the population, and they're not really sure whether that would be manageable or whether you're just going to have a race war. So for those reasons, nobody in Philadelphia is thinking seriously about abolishing slavery. So the, uh, the convention uh, winds up endorsing the Constitution by a pretty significant fraction of the delegates who are there, not all by any means. Uh, and you have a, a long discussion in your book about the arguments of, of people who were opposed to the Constitution, the so-called anti-federalists. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the main arguments against the Constitution? Sure. So the, the, the Federalists actually appropriated the name for themselves, and the Anti-Federalists complained about that because the Anti-Federalists are actually the ones who favor a confederation, and the Federalists are actually nationalists. So the Anti-Federalists bitterly resented the fact that the Federalists called themselves Federalists, and then they called the Anti-Federalists, which was seen as a term of denigration, Anti-Federalists. They were often proposing that we swap names or something like that. Uh, about half the country was anti-federalist. It's really important to appreciate, and I assume we'll talk about this a little bit yeah. more, about how close the ratification contest was. The anti-federalists objected to the powers of the national government, they objected to the structure of the national government, and they objected to the anti-populist features of the national government. So they said constantly, maybe their main argument was, the Constitution's going to create an aristocracy, only the wealthy landowners will be elected to office. Um, they said, we want mandatory rotation in office. We want much smaller constituencies. They thought Congress was really way too small. The first Congress was going to be 65 representatives for the entire country. The lower house of the Massachusetts legislature had over 300 delegates, but the Congress for the whole country was going to be 65. There are only going to be 26 people in the Senate. There was no mandatory rotation, no term limits for senators, no term li limits for presidents. They thought the president will just be elected ad infinitum. They objected to the fact that you couldn't instruct your representatives. Uh, they objected to uh, some of the specific powers of Congress. So they thought Congress shouldn't have virtually unlimited power over taxation. They would have preferred that Congress just have a limited power to impose import duties, but not actually be able to regulate, for example, taxes on land. They didn't think Congress ought to be able to create an army during peacetime. They would have liked limits on that. They would have said only 2,000 soldiers during peacetime, or both houses of Congress should have to agree by supermajorities. So they disagreed with the Necessary and Proper Clause, which gives Congress implied powers in addition to its explicit powers. They didn't like the federal court system. They thought the federal court system was going to benefit the rich, that you would have to travel hundreds of miles to get to a federal court, and only rich people would have access to the court. They objected to the Supreme Court's jurisdiction because appeals would require you to travel to the national capital. You know, back then, if you're a litigant in Georgia and you have to travel a thousand miles to New York, which was the nation's capital, there's no way you can afford to do that. So you're just going to have to default to the wealthy creditor who's suing you. They had a whole variety of objections. Too powerful a national government, not sufficiently responsive to public opinion, and they were really worried about creating an aristocracy of the wealthy and powerful. And they thought the state governments were much more democratic much more control by constituents over their representatives. So 
the Constitution set up a ratification process, which was uh, state by state, and which called on the states to elect uh, delegates to a ratification convention, uh, rather than having the existing state legislatures uh, ratify the Constitution. They set up an, a, a mechanism for, for, for conventions uh, in each state. And you argue in your book that the ratification process was, was very, very close and that the Constitution could easily have been defeated uh, in, the, in that process had just a few things uh, uh, changed uh, in the process. So let's talk about the ratification process. The, I, I think the first thing to note is that a number of the small states were very in favor of the Constitution because of the makeup of the Senate. And so you had fairly early ratifications in several small states, which kind of created a momentum uh, uh, for ratification when the issue got to the, to the states where the, where the issue was much closer. Um, can I say a word about yeah. Article 7 that yes, you alluded please. to? So this is in some ways the most brilliant thing the framers did, but it also requires an extraordinary amount of presumption and really chutzpah because they're changing the rules of the game in a way that nobody would have thought was possible. The Articles of Confederation required unanimous consent for amendment. When the Annapolis Convention, which failed in the fall of 1786, called for a Philadelphia convention. The Annapolis Convention was very clear that anything that was proposed by Philadelphia would have to go to Congress first for approval and then would have to be ratified by all 13 state legislatures. When Congress approved the Philadelphia Convention, Congress both limited them to amending the articles rather than just scrapping the articles, but Congress also said anything proposed by Philadelphia first has to go to Congress to be approved, and then has to go to the 13 state legislatures. The framers, after spending four months in Philadelphia working through the Constitution, were not about to require unanimous consent because they knew there was no chance they would get it. So they just wrote an article that said, okay, nine states can put the Constitution into operation. Those nine states can only bind themselves. But the four remaining states are actually going to be under tremendous pressure because once a new system is up in operation, the states that refuse to ratify no longer have federal military protection. They're outside the country, so their trade will be discriminated against, and they will be cut out of making, playing any role in the important decisions made by the first Congress, like choosing where the permanent national capital will be. So they completely changed the rules of the game. The Article 7 not only says that nine states can put this into operation, but it cuts Congress entirely out of the process, right. and it says we're going to have special ratifying conventions rather than state legislatures, right. which was another way of maximizing their chances of winning. Right, right. The, the point about the small states is, yeah, the sm this is ironic because they wrote the, the, most of the framers were, were kind of unhappy with the Senate. Uh, they, they, they really wanted... Uh, proportional representation, and they just lost because the small states fought so hard and so intensely. Yet that turned out to play an important role in ratification because states like Delaware, New Jersey, Georgia, those are the smallest states. They almost immediately ratified, and those three states were actually unanimous. And a lot of the reason was because they got such a great deal in the Senate, which they understood they didn't really deserve, but that made the Constitution pretty attractive to them. And that started to create momentum going forward when you got to some of the larger states where the ratification struggle was actually going to be very difficult. So uh, let's, let's look at some of those larger states. Which were the earliest to ratify among the larger states? Pennsylvania was the first large state to ratify. There was going to be a lot of division in Pennsylvania. It's most dramatically an East versus West division. So Philadelphia is overwhelmingly in support of the Constitution, but everything west of the Susquehanna River was strongly opposed to the Constitution. There was a really strong sort of urban versus rural split, and 95% of Americans lived outside of cities. Philadelphia was the largest city. It's only 30,000 people. But people who lived in cities overwhelmingly supported the Constitution. So when New York was voting on delegates for the ratifying convention, New York City, 19 out of every 20 voters 
voted for Federalist delegates, but New York State voted for anti-Federalists. I think the, the number was something like 46 anti-Federalists to 19 Federalists at the New York ratifying convention. New York almost certainly was going to vote against the Constitution, but by waiting so late in the process, it, it, New York actually made itself irrelevant. Pennsylvania was the first large state, and the Federalists were so determined to get this done quickly that they didn't even wait for the Constitution to be published in Western Pennsylvania. So this is less than 10 days after the Philadelphia Convention ended, and the, the Federalists in the legislature are trying to demand an immediate call for a convention, and the Anti-Federalists are saying, well, you know, wouldn't it be a good idea if we could actually read the Constitution before we vote on it? So the Anti-Federalists decided they were gonna walk out of the legislature so there wouldn't be a quorum, and the Federalists forcibly, they sent out the Sergeant-at-Arms to collect a couple of the anti-federalists, drag them back into the legislature, and then they had a quorum, they called a quick convention, and the federalists had a two-to-one majority, and they just played a forceful hand. The anti-federalists wanted to propose amendments, and the federalists said no. The anti-federalists wanted their speeches published, and the federalists said no, that'd be wasting taxpayer money. And the Federalists just pushed it through almost forcibly, and that had a backlash effect. The Anti-Federalists really felt like they'd been mistreated. They did not go home and lie down. They rallied opposition. They got thousands of people to sign petitions to the Pennsylvania legislature saying it should ignore what the ratifying convention did because it wasn't representative of the state. And that actually, they may have overplayed their hand, and subsequent Federalists were a little bit more reasonable and accommodating. Uh, you talk a lot in the book about the Virginia ratifying uh, process. Can you, can you talk a, a little bit about why that was so close? I mean, after all, this is the state of Washington and Madison. Uh, you would have thought that the Federalists would dominate. And Virginia set the whole thing in motion. So it's the Virginia legislature that first called the Annapolis Convention that led to the Philadelphia Convention. Virginia ratified by 89 to 79. It was always up for grabs. Nobody knew. There are lots of letters in Virginia, and nobody knew what the Virginia Convention was going to do. After the election for delegates, which was in March, I think, Madison wasn't sure what was going to happen. They didn't have very good information from the delegates from Kentucky. That was still part of Virginia at the time, and they thought there was reason that the far west might oppose the Constitution. I think Virginia had several reasons why you would predict there'd be a lot of opposition. Virginia was by far the largest and wealthiest state. If you just count the free population, Virginia was still the largest state, and Virginia had a 40% slave population on top of that. So Virginia really got screwed over in the Senate, which was going to say Delaware gets the same representation as Virginia. Virginia lost on both aspects of the deal over the foreign slave trade and over the Commerce Clause. So Virginia didn't want the foreign slave trade to continue because Virginia slave owners already had more slaves than they needed. They were already selling their slaves south for a profit, and keeping the foreign slave trade open was just going to reduce the value of Virginia slaves. So Virginia, like George Mason, was the leading opponent of continuing the foreign slave trade. Virginia wanted the slave trade shut off, and Virginia wanted the supermajority requirement for commercial legislation because Virginia planters don't want New England shepherds to be ripping them off in the freight charges for carrying their tobacco to Europe. So that deal between the Deep South and the New England states screwed over Virginia on both aspects. And then finally, Virginia planters owe the largest debts to European creditors, British creditors, and they're really worried that the federal court system is actually going to make them pay those debts. So the, uh, there were no federal court system under the Articles. There's only the state court system, and Virginia judges are very responsive to public opinion in Virginia. They owe their jobs to the Virginia legislature, and given immense resistance to paying pre-war debts to British creditors, they weren't making them do it. There was legislation in Virginia clearly in defiance of the treaty. The federal court system was seen as a way of making states abide by treaties. So they didn't talk about this at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, but outside the convention, Madison was complaining, this is the main reason why the Constitution is unpopular in Virginia, is Virginia planners are actually going to have to pay their pre-war debts to British creditors. 
you add all that up, and there's a lot of opposition to the Constitution in Virginia. And when it's finally voted on, how many other states had ratified by the time Virginia finally votes? So three conventions meet in June. Leading up to those three conventions, eight states have ratified. South Carolina was the eighth state in mid-June, but it's in mid-May. The New York Convention is going to meet around June 17th. The Virginia Convention meets around June 4th. And the New Hampshire Convention, which had already met but then adjourned, it was going to vote against ratification, and the Federalists deftly adjourned it the first time it met in February. New Hampshire is going to meet again like a day or two after New York. And news travels so quickly that New Hampshire has become the ninth state to ratify before the Virginia sorry, news travels slowly. Virginia ratified around June 25th. New Hampshire had ratified a few days before that, but Virginia didn't know it. So Virginia is actually the 10th state to ratify, but they thought they were the ninth state. And they also expected that New Hampshire was going to ratify. So Virginia is the 10th state. New New York, the convention meets around June 17th, but it actually lasts for over a month. Alexander Hamilton, from his own pocket, is financing express riders to bring news from Richmond and from New Hampshire because he understands the only way New York's going to ratify is if New York thinks it's now a foregone conclusion. There's already 10 states ratifying. The question now is, are we going to join a nation that already exists? Plus, New York City is threatening to secede from New York State. Right, New York City. Southern New York is placing incredible pressure on New York 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 City was dominated uh, by Federalist sentiment, pro-Constitution sentiment, because uh, because it was thought and and rightly that the Constitution would be good for New York commerce uh, and the shippers. So by the time New York um, votes, uh, the issue is: is New York going to be part of the new country or not? The new country exists. So uh, even so, the vote in New York is is still very close. I mean, you would have thought that with New York City threatening to secede and the constant and the country existing and the New York going to be part of it or, or an outlier, you would have thought that the arguments for being part of it were very strong. And yet, the vote was very close. So um, I, I believe that New York has 46 anti-federalists and 19. Federalists. So the Anti-Federalists have a majority of over two to one. The Anti-Federalists are very confident going into the convention that there's no way New York's going to ratify without what they call antecedent amendments. So if you want us to ratify, first you have to adopt the amendments we want, and then we'll think about approving this. Hamilton is writing to Madison saying the only chance we have for winning in New York is if Virginia ratifies, if New Hampshire ratifies, and the anti-federalists start, especially the southern anti-federalists, the southern anti-federalists in New York. So the ones who are elected, New York City is electing only federalists, but I'm not too good with the counties. Nassau County, Suffolk County, Kings County, the counties of southern New York, Long Island, Staten Island, those counties have elected anti-federalists but they might be pressured by their constituents into changing their mind if there's going to be a new union with or without them. So what happens at the New York Convention is the Federalists want to drag this out until they get word from New Hampshire and Virginia, and then they're hoping the Anti-Federalists will get cold feet. But a lot of the Anti-Federalists are really worried about basically reneging on promises they made to their constituents. Their constituents knew their platforms. In New York, the elections for ratifying conventions were on specific platforms. You knew you were electing someone who would vote for the Constitution or against it. So a lot of the anti-federalists are feeling like, well, you know, it's not really doing my service to my constituents if they sent me here to vote against and I decide that I'm going to vote in favor. So there's a long negotiation. John Jay especially is using his formidable diplomatic skills to try to convince the anti-federalists to go along with this. There are a couple of intermediate steps. So first, the anti-federalists say, well, what about if we agree to ratify the Constitution contingent on Congress agreeing not to exercise certain powers in New York until there's been a second convention to consider amendments? And the Federalists are saying, that's ridiculous. You know, Congress can't agree to that. They're not going to agree to that. So they say instead, okay, here's another possibility. Let's agree to the Constitution, but if the amendments we propose don't get ratified, we reserve the right to walk out of the Union in four or five years. 
And Hamilton writes to Madison and says, would Congress accept that? And Madison writes back saying, no, that's ridiculous. Congress isn't going to agree to that. And finally, anti-federalists just back down all the way to saying, okay, we'll go along with it. So several of the states which ratified called for amendments. And the amendments that they called for were really of two kinds, as you point out in the book. One, the first kind were basic human rights, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, uh, jury trial, etc. But the second were so-called structural amendments that would have changed the powers of Congress vis-a-vis uh, -vis taxation and, and certain other matters. So Madison, who originally opposed a Bill of Rights, looks at this, uh, this call for a Bill of Rights coming out of the states, and he decides to uh, meet that call partway by writing a Bill of Rights in the, in the first Congress that creates uh, amendments of the first kind dealing with human rights, but no amendments of the second kind, so-called structural amendments, which would have undermined uh, the power of Congress. Right, so just to start with a little background, there is no Bill of Rights in the original Constitution, which was a striking omission to us today and was a striking omission to many people at the time. So when John Adams representing the country in England, Thomas Jefferson representing the country in France, when they see the Constitution, their first reaction is, why is there no Bill of Rights? There are particular individual rights. So, for example, the right to a jury trial in criminal cases in, is in the original Constitution. The right not to have the writ of habeas corpus suspended except in time of rebellion or invasion. That's in the original Constitution. But on the next to last day of the, of the convention, George Mason says, what about a Bill of Rights? And Elbridge Gerry says, yeah, that's a good idea. And most of the delegates say no, partly because they didn't want to open up a new can of worms. But that was actually a strategic mistake. That's the main argument against the Constitution is there's no Bill of Rights. There's no protection for free exercise of religion. There's no protection for freedom of speech, freedom of the press, right against unreasonable searches and seizures, protection against uh, excessive fines and, and punishment. None of that's there. So originally, the Federalists in the early convention said no amendments can be proposed. That was their position, is even ratifying conventions can't even suggest amendments. Then the Massachusetts Convention, which is the sixth to ratify, but was really a closely fought contest, the Federalists realized they will lose in Massachusetts if they don't meet the Anti-Federalists halfway. So what they say is, ratify the Constitution, and we're going to promise you that there will be amendments to come. And in every subsequent convention except Maryland's, that's what ends up happening. They ratify right. the Constitution, but with a promise that amendments will come later. The main fight was, should the amendments come before the Constitution goes into effect, or should they come after the Constitution? And many anti-federalists said, Patrick Henry said in Virginia, he's one of the leading anti-federalists, one of the leading critics of the Constitution. He says, you would, have to be a, you would have to be an imbecile, you would have to be an idiot to agree to a contract that the other side was free to fill the terms in later. He says, of course you should know what the amendments are and they should be agreed to before you ratify, but Madison was able at Virginia to head off the call for antecedent amendments. So the Federalists have managed to get the Constitution ratified with a promise of amendments, and then the question is what's gonna happen in the first Congress. And Madison delivers. Madison at least delivers. The, the first kind uh, of amendment. Right, so Madison. No, no structural amendment. Right, so Ma Madison makes a promise to his constituents. He's actually in a constituency. Patrick Henry is dominant in the Virginia legislature. He gets the Virginia legislature to not make Madison a senator. They choose two anti Federalist senators. He gerrymanders Madison's district so that to Madison's disadvantage, he gets a war hero, James Monroe, to run against Madison. He gets the Virginia legislature to reappoint Madison to Congress, so he's back in New York, so he can't campaign in Virginia. Madison eventually comes back because he knows he's going to lose to James Monroe if he doesn't come back and reassure his constituents, many of whom, for example, there's a large population of Baptists in Orange County, Madison's home county, who hate the fact that the Constitution doesn't protect religious liberty. They've just been fighting for the statute for religious 
uh, liberty in Virginia, and they were persecuted. They were thrown in jail for practicing their Baptist religion as recently as 10 years earlier. So Madison says, I promise you elect me to Congress, I will get a Bill of Rights. Then he stands up and he tries to deliver on the Bill of Rights, but Federalists utterly dominate the first Congress, and most of the Federalists say, we're not interested in a Bill of Rights, you know, let's try the government out before we amend it. We have important things to do. We have to raise revenue. We have to set up a judiciary. Why should we be amending the Constitution? The fe Anti-Federalists have very little representation, and Madison says, no, we promised them we we're going to do this. We have to do this. They're not going to trust us if we don't do this. They're going to suspect that we have ill motivations, that we're grasping for power. So then Madison takes control of the project, and he won't give the Anti-Federalists the amendments they want. They want a larger Congress. They want mandatory rotation in office. They want limits of the taxing power. And Madison says, no, we're not doing any of that. We're going to give these rights limitations, which Madison thinks are worthless parchment barriers. And the anti-federalists ridicule them. They say, we're not interested in that. We want structural amendments that will actually limit the power of the government. So actually, neither the federalists nor the anti-federalists were enthusiastic about what Madison was doing. But Madison persisted, and he got the Congress to pass the Bill of Rights, and then the states ratified. But nobody at the time of the founding thought this was a particularly important enterprise, whereas we think it's an incredibly important thing that sets us apart from the rest sure. of the world. Mike, we have some questions that have come from the audience that I'd like you to answer. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Uh, the first one, Madison at the convention is a strong advocate for a strong national government. Later, under Jefferson, Madison becomes an advocate for states' rights. When did he change and why? Right, so historians and biographers of Madison are obsessed with this question. Was Madison consistent? Can you portray him as consistent over time? By the early 1790s, he's already a little bit horrified by what Hamilton is using the national government's power to do. Madison doesn't believe in a national bank, which is one of the first things Hamilton does. Madison certainly doesn't think that the national government ought to be subsidizing manufacturing, which is what Hamilton uh, promotes in his report on manufacturing. Hamilton, uh, Madison, as a Virginian, doesn't want the federal government to assume state debts, which Hamilton is intent on doing. So the question is, how does Madison go from being this extreme nationalist who actually thinks the federal government ought to be able to veto state laws to 1798 when he writes the Virginia resolutions attacking the Alien and Sedition Acts as unconstitutional, where he actually seems to be suggesting that a state government can nullify a federal statute, right? How do you go from thinking the federal government should be able to veto state laws to thinking that individual states ought to be able to veto federal laws. And the answer, I think, has to do with a couple of things. First, Madison is a representative from Virginia. It's a state that it turns increasingly and quickly against the Adams administration and the Washington administration. And also, I don't think Madison ever dreamed of what Hamilton would do with the national government's power. Madison mostly favored federal power to prevent the states from passing debtor relief laws and paper money laws. He and Hamilton agreed with that. That doesn't mean he favored the national government creating a national bank and subsidizing manufacturing, and Madison was horrified by that. Later, he tried to rationalize himself as being consistent, but I think Madison was never completely able to reconcile these positions. But notice, you know, that's not, that's not saying he's just a political opportunist. He's saying circumstances changed, and it's a foolish, you know, it's a fool, uh, foolish inconsistence, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Madison thought if circumstances had changed, you can change your mind about things. Um, in 1787, how can the Constitution be reconciled with the Declaration of Independence, which said all men are created equal? Uh, so a couple things about that. First of all, the anti-federalists are repeatedly saying, how can the country that fought a war against Great Britain on the principle of no taxation without representation, how can that same country possibly be ratifying a constitution that is delegating almost unlimited power to a federal government that is very distant, both in a physical sense and in a medical for, metaphorical sense, large constituencies, long terms in office, uh, no direct 
uh, constituent power over representatives, no mandatory rotation, uh, no instruction. How can that country possibly be ratifying the Constitution? The Anti-Federalists said that all the time. The people who fought the revolution, there's no way they ought to be abandoning their liberties to this distant, powerful national government. I take it the question was asking something else, which was about slavery. The man who wrote those words, Thomas Jefferson, was a large slave owner. Some Americans thought there was tension there. The ideology of the revolution, that all men are created equal, forced many Americans to rethink their views about slavery. Many people wrote pamphlets. Free blacks in Massachusetts wrote pamphlets saying, how can it be that the people who are fighting a revolution not to be enslaved would hold their own slaves? But people are pretty good at managing to reconcile inconsistency, and Southern slave owners thought all men are created equal, men, you know, all people who are like them, all white men are created equal. They didn't think that African Americans were equal. They didn't think everybody, they certainly didn't think women were included in the Declaration of Independence. So they didn't necessarily think there was much inconsistency there. Um, is it true that as the president of the convention, George Washington only spoke briefly three times during the entire four months of the convention. Why was that? What role did Washington play? I only remember Washington speaking once. So on the last day of the convention, Washington approved the idea. So this is going to get a little complicated. I'll be very brief about it. The Constitution puts a floor on the number of, represent number of constituents in a House district. So under the Constitution, you can't make a House district smaller than 40,000 people. The anti-federalists were worried that you would have these enormous house districts. So in Massachusetts, each member of the lower house represented fewer than 1,500 people. But in Congress, every representative was going to represent at a minimum 40,000. And there's nothing in the Constitution that would prevent it from being 50,000 or 60,000. The Constitution prevents it from being reduced. So Washington supported a proposal to reduce that floor from 40,000 to 30,000, which he thought, I think, was a way of getting George Mason and Edmund Randolph at the convention to vote for the Constitution and would be a way of satisfying some anti-federalists. That's all that Washington said at the convention. Now, Washington lent enormous legitimizing influence to the Constitution. Washington was revered by the country in a way that I think no subsequent politician during his or her lifetime was. And the fact that, you know, the anti-federalists are saying, if you ratify the Constitution, the federal government's going to enslave you. It's going to be a government of aristocracy. It's going to turn into a tyranny. And one of the federalist's strongest rejoinders was, George Washington endorsed this. You're really telling me you think George Washington, who saved the country during the revolution, who could have been a dictator, but decided he would go back to his farm at Mount Vernon. We trust George Washington, plus we assume he'll be the first president, and therefore we feel more reassured that the president's not going to become a monarch. In his book, American Sphinx, Joe Ellis says Jefferson felt slavery was morally repugnant in light of the American Revolution. Why was there no consideration about the basic morality of slavery at the convention? Um, there were people at the convention who clearly thought slavery was wrong. Uh, ben Franklin played a leading role in the abolitionist movement in Pennsylvania. Alexander Hamilton and John Jay played a leading role in the abolitionist movement in New York. And even among the Virginians in 1787, George Mason, James Madison, George Washington, all said to things to the effect that slavery is wrong, but it is right now a necessary evil. We can't just liberate the slave population because we'd be appropriating vast amounts of wealth, and we don't know what we do with a large free black population. We're certainly not going to enfranchise African Americans. We don't think they could be equal citizens. We think it would lead to a race war. So they think it's wrong, but they don't necessarily know what to do with it. And again, you know, it's, people are always capable of rationalizing things that strike us as obviously immoral. The United States fought against Hitler in World War II with a segregated army. African Americans thought that was the rankest possible form of hypocrisy. Lots of Americans began to reconsider their views about race during the World War II, but the country didn't do anything. Franklin Roosevelt refused to desegregate the army. Instead, he said, I'll uh, set up a Federal Employment Practices Commission and we'll bar discrimination in defense contracting, but I'm not desegregating the military. 
during the war. People are very good at rationalizing what's in their self-interest. The South Carolinians didn't think slavery was wrong. They actually, you know, you can tell yourself a story. I mean, we don't buy it, obviously. They said slavery is good for slaves. So uh, slavery, you know, it's the same argument the secretary of, uh, you know, um, the HUD secretary has made about, you know, black tourists in the United States arriving in slave ships, right? A land of opportunity. Slave owners said, South Carolinians said at the convention, look, slaves are going to be better off in the United States. Slave owners believe this. They said it all the way to the Civil War. Slavery is a Christianizing institution. We're saving their souls. It's a civilizing institution. It's a welfare institution. Young children, when their slaves are taken care of, old people as slaves are taken care of. Compare that to northern industrial capitalism, which chews people up and spits them out. They believe those things. I mean, they actually believe that being a slave owner, if you were a morally, you know, if you if you behaved in the right way, that there was nothing wrong with this. People can convince themselves of lots of things. Well, Mike, our hour is up. Uh, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, it's been a very interesting hour. Thank, thank you, you very Thanks much. Very much for doing it. Appreciate it. So we want to thank you, Ben O'Schmidt, Michael Klarman, and you, the wonderful audience. We want to remind you that Michael Klarman will be signing his books on the Central Park West Side. Our museum store is open with his book, The Framer's Coup. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. And there is lots more to come. Pick up a brochure if you don't have it. We have a lot of great programs coming up. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.